Hello, and welcome to the Scripts and Scribes podcast. I'm your host, Kevin Fukunaga. For more great interviews and resources on the craft and business of writing, be sure to check out our companion website, scriptsandscribes.com. But first, we welcome back to the show a uh, screenwriter and whose first project sold to Ridley Scott, and he's written and sold to Warner's, Universal, Fox, Disney, Paramount, and numerous production companies. He's also a screenwriting instructor who was taught at UCLA, Film Independent, and has his own screenwriting workshops. We're very happy to have back on Corey Mandel. Thanks for coming back on, Corey. Thanks for having me back, Kevin. Your last episode was super popular, and so we're great, really happy to have you back on. But last time it was the unscripted podcast, which is a lot more informal, but we did you did have a ton of great information. And so if, if listeners haven't heard that one yet, they should go back, go back and, and check it out. It's on our website. Uh, and we did talk about uh, things like three things every screenwriter should know, selecting uh, a good screenwriting consultant or reader, and writing material that is pitch perfect authentic. So it, it was great stuff. Um, but this time, because in the unscripted, we don't really get to know you as well, which I think gives us a good basis of, of learning about you and, and what you, you provide, the information you provide and, and where it comes from. Um, so I wanted to start off by asking about your background. I know you're from San Francisco and you got your MFA in screenwriting, screenwriting from UCLA. But I also hear that you studied applied economics at UC Santa Cruz and even worked at the Federal Reserve. And those two don't usually coincide. So I guess my first question is economics, screenwriting, Corey Mandel, how do those merge and how did that work? And how did you end up where you are now? Uh, well, that's, yeah, that's, that's a crazy, it was a little bit of a crazy <laughs> path. I, I basically went. I went to college with the idea that I was going to be a lawyer because everyone told me I should be a lawyer. And so I majored in economics and I really loved studying economics and I worked for the Federal Reserve Bank. And I realized there's a difference between studying economics in college and practicing economics in the real world. And it just, it, it wasn't something I wanted to be doing. And there was an economist there who was a frustrated screenwriter and wanted to be a screenwriter and always talked about screenwriting. And that was just, and I, I grew up loving movies, but I just never occurred to me that I could be a writer. Uh, I didn't know any writers growing up in the Bay Area. So this economist put the bug into my head that, oh yeah, there are people that write those things. I wonder if I could do it. And um, long story short, I, that's what got me thinking about film school. And I applied to film school at UCLA, and I didn't get in. And I, uh, I fought it. And I said, I want to appeal. And they said, you can't appeal. We have, and I forget the number, you know, we have 8,000 people applying for 10 spots. Or we have no appeal process. Right. You can apply next You can apply next year. So I figured I had nothing to lose. So I appealed anyway. And I appealed um, by a telegram. And hmm. two days later, they took me. And, <laughs> and, <laughs> and I don't know if they took me because... I had so much chutzpah, or if they took me because they had no bureaucratic box to put me in. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> so basically, some economist was talking a lot about screenwriting, and I hated my day job, and it made me think I was just young and dumb enough to go, maybe I ought to try that. <laughs> so that let that be a lesson to people that uh, if you don't get into UCLA and they tell you you can't appeal, then <laughs> appeal via telegram, and who knows, magic things going to happen. <laughs> What's the worst they can do? Um, so uh, you went to UCLA, 
and studied. Uh, you got your MFA in screenwriting there, and you also have, have taught have taught there and and taught uh, at Film Independent. Um, you've also sold a lot of scripts. So you're you're a teacher, one of the few who actually has sold, as well as teaching, because a lot of of yeah. So I've, I've I've done pretty much everything a professional screenwriter does. I've sold spec scripts. I've sold pitches. I've been hired to adapt novels and graphic novels. Uh, I've done a lot of rewrites. I've done production rewrites where you're on set. Uh, you don't get credit, but mm -hmm. you get a nice paycheck. And you're literally on set rewriting the comedy or rewriting the structure or rewriting characters or whatever it is they need rewriting. Um, and I've also been a few times hired to write an original idea that the studio has. Sometimes executives will have ideas and bring in writers to write those. So I've done 19 for higher studio projects um, over a course of 12 years. So for better or worse, I've done pretty much everything a working writer in this town does. Um, and that's great, because that's something that I want to talk about quickly. Um, and we were talking before the the podcast starting started uh, about uh, features versus TV, and I do want to get into that. But before we do, there's something that comes up a lot, and you may be in sort of a unique position to to answer some of these questions. And it's it's writing that great spec, and like a lot of new writers, a lot of young writers believe that writing a spec and selling it, that one spec and selling it is is the way in and it can be but in today's market after the 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 2007 writers guild strike the you know and the sort of market consolidation uh it's, it's definitely not the only way in, and it's definitely not the most common way in um and and being a, a screenwriting consultant a teacher and a, a, a screenwriter can you maybe talk about some of the other ways that that a writer can break into the industry other than spelling a, selling a spec, yeah. which again is a rare proposition. It does happen, but if that's the only thing that you're concerned about and that's the only thing you're working towards, I've, you're going to make it much more difficult on yourself, I think. Not only that, you're making uh, one of the most common mistakes that writers make. And mm -hmm. before, I, before I expound, just to back up, um, even before 2007, before the consolidation of our district, it was still... Most people who broke in the business were not breaking in by selling spec scripts. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. It's just that because there were more spec scripts being sold, there was there was reporting of that. And so when someone breaks in another way, which I'm going to talk about, that wouldn't get reported in variety. What would be reported is a script sell because it's a spec here. Right. So, thing, so, okay, here's the key. Call the Writers Guild of America and you ask them, how do writers make money, TV writers, feature writers? And there's two basic ways. One way is selling original material, or, and I'm going to include option in that, so sell or option original material. Um, your listeners know what that means. You write a TV pilot, you write a feature, you sell it, or you option it. So that's one category of how writers make money. The second category is paid writing work. So you get staffed on a TV show, or in the feature world, it's an assignment. So a studio has acquired intellectual property and, you know, be it a comic book, be it a novel, be it a remake of, a, of an older movie, they need someone to come in and write that script. And they often need someone to come in and rewrite what that first writer wrote. Um, so there's paid writing work and then there's the selling of original material. 
to call the Writers Guild of America and ask them what's the division, how much, what percentage of all monies that writers make come from selling original material versus paid writing work. And it's, it's generally 90-10, which is to say generally 90% of all monies paid to writers comes from paid writing work. 10% comes from the sale of original material. Those numbers might fluctuate slightly year to year, but it's roughly 90-10. So the money is in paid writing work. Mm-hmm. And so if, you're list, if you have a listener who would like to have a career as a writer, um, they're going to either write something and sell it, or they're going to write something that's going to be a sample script that demonstrates just how unbelievably originally amazing they are and why people should pay attention to them over the hordes of people trying to break in the business um, and why a manager and an agent who, you know, is winning crazy taking care of their own clients absolutely wants to take this person on and why a network or a studio, and this is the key, why anyone would want to pay money to hire this writer who has no track record is an unknown commodity. Why they would be taking that risk over hiring someone with a track record. And the only reason is because the sample script or the two sample scripts that they wrote really completely knock people's socks off. People can't stop thinking about these scripts. Everybody's talking about these scripts. And it's like, well, I just have to work with this writer. So that's the objective. And when I was breaking in the business, which was 1999, so you know, well before 2007, I was lucky enough to have smart people tell me, your objective is not to write a script that sells. Because even then, more so now, you have no control over what sells. It's, mm-hmm. It's all about being at the right place at the right time with the right script. And what people don't tell you is avoiding all the things that can derail the sell that you can never foresee and you have no control over. So as my first agent at ICM said, selling a spec script is like winning the lottery. And that's 1999. Mm-hmm. That's not 2015. Right. Um, but here's the thing. If you write a sample script that knocks people's socks off, you're going to have a real shot at a career by someone coming in and hiring you. So here's, I'll give you two examples, one in TV, one in feature. Matthew Weiner wrote a spec script for a show called Mad Men. No one was going to make that script for a variety of reasons, but everybody was talking about that script as a writing sample. And it got to David Chase, who's running The Sopranos. Sopranos is the center of the writing universe since mm-hmm. 2001. I mean, literally, David Chase could pick up the phone and call anyone in TV and probably a lot of people in features and say, hey, I've got an open spot in my writing team. Do you want it? And it, he, could, he could get just about anybody he wanted. Matthew Weiner is an un, I think he, he has been working on a, on a smaller TV show um, but he, no disrespect to Matthew Weiner, he's not the kind of person that David Chase is going to be calling. Mm-hmm. But David Chase read the script for Mad Men and said, I had never read a script like this before. The characters, the story, couldn't stop thinking about it. I wanted to work with that guy. And so he, Matthew Weiner gets hired onto Sopranos as a staff writer, goes on to win one, and I think actually two, Emmys for, draft, uh, for episodes that he wrote. And then when The Sopranos ends, he now has the leverage to get Mad Men made. Mm-hmm. Um, Eric Singer, who recently uh, wrote American Hustle, you know, he broke into the business with a script called The Sky is Falling, 
which is, it's very dark. I mean, a lot of people said, like, it would make Quentin Tarantino blush. Very violent, <laughs> very dark, but very unique and very powerful. And nobody bought it, um, but everyone wanted to meet the guy who wrote that. And he just started getting writing assignment after writing assignment. I mean, talking nice six-figure income for many, many years. Mm-hmm. Um, and he's not in the trades. He's not, um, you know, dead. What he he's not selling stuff. He's working, and he, and at nights and on weekends he continues to write spec scripts. And eventually, one of those spec scripts sells and gets made uh, as a, you know American Hustle. Now he's a big A-list writer. Um, I'm just real quick. I wrote a script that got a star attached, that then got a star director attached. That literally on Friday, my agent said, "Don't." Go anywhere on Monday, be by your phone, because this is, you know, it's not a question of is this script held, it's how much. I, I had the second biggest female star in the business at the time, and I had the one director everyone was looking to work with. And something happened over the weekend that no one could foresee that nothing to do with my project, had to do with a, a competing project mm-hmm. that some people got cold feet. And on Monday, my phone didn't ring, you know, <laughs> on Tuesday, I called my agent, and my agent said, I've never seen a script come so close to not selling, which I didn't know if that was a compliment or an insult. <laughs> but as a writing sample, two weeks later, I was in a room with Ridley Scott's people. Four weeks later, I was in a room with Ridley Scott pitching Metropolis. Ridley bought Metropolis in the room. Flew me. I was literally on a plane to London within 48 hours. So the problem is a lot of writers are so focused on selling scripts, they, they ask themselves, well, what's selling? They start thinking about the kinds of stuff studios are making and so you're, you know, straight down the box formulaic projects and they start thinking about successful TV shows like The Walking Dead and they start doing their version of The Walking Dead or their version of The Good Life. And when we start talking about what's going on in the business, that's a big mistake. That, that's a really good strategy for generally getting ignored. Mm-hmm. That's not the way to break into the business. Um, a lot of that information is in our first podcast uh, where we talked about Pitch Perfect Authentic, and I really would recommend people take a listen to that if they're interested in that. I know we're going to push this further and expand upon it. But, yeah. Um, and I'm sorry if I'm over-answering your question, but I, no, just, no. I absolutely agree with your question and your premise, but I just want to take it a step further yeah. and say it's, it's actually hurting people who are focused on trying to write a script that sells. What a lot of managers will tell you is, you have to write a head-turning script, mm-hmm. a script that turns people's heads, and they go, whoa, I've never seen a script like that before. Who the heck wrote that script? I want to meet that writer, see what they're thinking about, see if you can't plug that writer into something we're thinking about. Right. That's 100% true. Um, and uh, it's not just for the sake of of being... Uh, great because there are a lot of well i I don't want to say there's a lot of great material floating around but they are out there but it's it's also they read so many scripts and so many of them are the same thing that if you write something that's unique in your voice that only you can write uh it'll definitely stand out if it's if it's well absolutely yeah absolutely and that's a big mistake that most writers take years to figure out that they're making yeah um now, TV and features, uh, both markets mm-hmm. have changed dramatically uh, in, mm-hmm. in, in recent years. 
Um, and, and there's been sort of a, a seismic shift. And I hear it from managers and agents, uh, as well as, as screenwriters. The, before, everyone wanted to work in features. Not that features aren't still great and the money's not still great. And, and, and mm-hmm. not that features aren't still an awesome place to work if you can get work. But it seems like everybody now wants to work in TV. Feature writers, feature directors, everybody wants to have their their hand in in television. Uh, and again, I hear it from from agents and managers and everybody. So right. I wanted I want to get your take on what's the current state of the TV slash feature film industries, um, and, and where where you think it's headed. The TV marketplace is obviously very exciting. There's lots of scripts being bought. Um, just so just for example, I teach at UCLA and I was in a class with Michael Lombardo who runs HBO and he said that HBO is planning on buying 200 pilot scripts this year. That's about 120 dramas and about 80 comedies. To put that in perspective, that's more spec scripts than all of the movie studios combined will buy. And that's just HBO at in Netflix. Yeah, added Netflix and Amazon and Stars and uh, AMC and FX and all you know F- uh, Fox, NBC. You, you you put in all of the buyers, both broadcast and uh, cable. It's a staggering number of pilots. And when I say pilots, that could be an actual spec pilot, or it could be a pitch that they now uh, buy and hire the writer to write the pilot script. It's a lot of work for writers. A lot of these pilots will never see the air. They'll never get made, but mm-hmm. you still get, you still get paid. So I have lots of students and clients who they will sell one or two or three pilots a year and have done so for the last five years. And let's say none of them have actually gotten made. You know, they're still making 150 to $300,000 or more for principally five months worth of work. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not bad work if you can get it. And if any of those shows actually go to air, then the sky's the limit. So it's a really exciting time to be in TV. Now the question is what kind of scripts are being bought and why? And so if you go, I, I make a habit of reading pretty much every year, everything that sells. And there is a marked difference between what's being bought today and what was being bought five or six years ago. And lots of writers who don't have access to that information are really shooting at the wrong target. So let's just start with this. HBO, um, as we all know, they are not making conventional shows. Their, their motto, their brand is, we're HBO, we're not TV. Or it's not TV, it's HBO. And so, you know, if we go back five, six, seven, eight years ago, there's a lot of familiarity on TV. We, we see lots of, procedurals, uh, medical, legal, what have you, uh, police procedurals. We see a lot of sitcom laugh factory type projects. And we see a lot of things that seem like other things. So you take a successful show and you just change it 10%. Um, you know, The Good Wife was that standard show, but let's do it from the wife's perspective. And I'm sure, you know, someone will say, let's do The Good Wife, but let's do it from the dog's perspective or the kid's perspective, or let's do The Walking Dead, but do it with werewolves. You saw a lot of those kinds of scripts being bought, the, the scripts that sort of follow the, the, the popular paradigms and are, are copying what was successful, but, but there's something a little bit different about it. You know, that, that's not the game anymore. So again, let's go back to HBO. 
HBO is not going to do anything that's derivative. They're not going to do something that feels standard and generic. Their shows all have to be completely unique. Love them or hate them, they're completely unique. There's nothing like girls on TV. Um, when Game of Thrones first came out, it's been copied since, but there was nothing like Game of Thrones or Looking or The Wire or The Sopranos. So now that's HBO. So if we go back oh, seven years ago, HBO's only real competition for those kinds of original, unique storytelling projects was probably Showtime. So HBO and Showtime would compete for those projects. Then, now HBO is competing with Showtime, FX, uh, AMC, you know, Breaking Bad and Fargo as two examples could, could and would have only been HBO shows seven or eight years ago or ten years ago. Um, they're competing with Netflix. You know, I believe HBO wanted uh, House of Cards and lost out to Netflix. They're competing with Amazon. Mm-hmm. That makes HBO's life much more difficult. But now they're even competing with the networks. And that's something that's really important for your listeners to understand. The networks are now buying and developing material that is non-formulaic, non-standard fare, not derivative, doesn't hit all the act breaks in the exact same way. It's unique, original storytelling. Characters, worlds, and we've never seen before told in unique ways. We don't have a lot of examples of that on air yet, except maybe the uh, you know, last man on earth. You will see a lot more examples down the road because there's a three-year development process. Now, here's the question. Why is everyone now turning turning their back from a lot of the standard, uh, usual formulaic fare and trying to do unique original stuff? And the answer is obviously because that's what the audience demands. We now have a whole generation of viewers who have had access to digital platforms, on-demand platforms like Netflix and Amazon. It is the most educated group of viewers ever. And they know what's brand new. They know what's original and fresh. And they know what is a reheating of something they've seen before. Mm -hmm. And there's so much competition from YouTube and other internet and games. There's so much competition out there that in order to have and keep an audience, it's becoming more and more important to have something that's unique and original and something we haven't seen before that's exciting. And it doesn't, and it, the models no longer get a TV show that appeals to the most people, which was what the networks used to be doing. More and more, they're looking for shows that maybe it doesn't appeal to everybody, but to the group that it appeals to, they're loyal, and they'll keep watching that show. That's the new paradigm for TV. So, again, there's so many writers out there who probably read a book or took a class, and they're they're writing to this mindset of, of what has to happen at the act race and how you have to construct your shows. And those scripts are generally being ignored. What people are looking for is material that's unique, material they haven't seen before. And you look at the, the, the pilot that sold last year, even to the networks, it's, it's really amazing. It's an entirely different role out there. Now that said, there'll certainly always be procedural. There'll always be, Last Factory sitcoms. I'm not saying those kind of shows are going to disappear, but it's not what you want to write if you want to break into business. So I was with a manager last yesterday, and one of the things he said is, like, for instance, on the comedy front, if you have an idea and you are writing or developing an idea for a three-camera 
standard comedy laugh factory show. There, there will be no traction in the marketplace unless, you know, you were a writer um, on, you know, two men, two and a half men or, or some really successful show. If you have the pedigree and the track record, yes, then people will be interested in what you have to say. But if you're a newer writer, no one's going to pay any attention to you. But if you have a single camera, interesting idea for a show like Silicon Valley or Last Man on Earth, mm-hmm. Very much you can, if, if, if you knock that script out of the park, the execution, because that's the other thing in TV is the idea matters, but the execution matters even more. And if you have both, then people will pay attention to you. So, and the other thing to remember about TV is packaging is where all the money is. And without going too much down that rabbit hole, agents can't be producers. Um, there's lots of restrictions, but they can package. And so if WME or CAA, um, or whomever packages a show. They put all the elements together and they get 10% of the show, but they also get packaging fees. That's where the money is. That's what's paying the bills. So the first TV show to be packaged was True Detective. And this, this should be very exciting to your listeners who are potentially interested in TV because this is a paradigm change. Because it used to be you have a manager, an agent, you've written a TV script, they take it out to the marketplace and hopefully someone buys it and then they develop it. Remember, I said feature industry is not looking to get into the development game. TV still is very hands-on development. So mm-hmm. you get some money, they give you notes, and you go through a cycle of rewrites um, under their guidance. And then at some point down the road, they decide if they want to continue or not. And then if they do continue, Eventually, they decide if they actually want to shoot it as a pilot and test it or not, and then eventually decide if they even want to make it or not. There's so many hoops you have to jump through. Um, it's a numbers game. So what um, what Mike Sugar did, who's a manager at Anonymous Content, content when True Detective came in, and he decided not to go down that route. He went out and uh, packaged it. He brought in Matthew McConaughey and Woody Harrelson. Uh, he brought in the director. And when he went out, and I don't know literally what he said, but basically what it was is this is not a script. This is not something you buy to develop. We're not selling a script. We're selling a TV show. And you have to make this commitment to the TV show. You're making this, and you're making this number of episodes, and this is what it's going to (laughs) cost. And you have two things. You can say yes, or you can say no. And you have 24 hours to decide. And everybody wanted it. There was a bidding war. HBO won. I believe they got $600,000 an episode for a 10-year commitment. That's $6 million commitment. Um, and so if you're that writer, literally your life changes overnight. So I know the writers who wrote the next script that went this way, and it was the same person, Mike Sugar, anonymous content. And um, I, it was not that long after that these writers turned in the script for the Knicks. And he got Steven Sodenberg attached and then Clive Owen and the same thing. This is a TV show. Do you want it or do you not want it? Yes or no. And that's a life-changing experience for those writers. I mean, the writers of the Nick, I mean, they are now being chased by heads of studios for feature projects, major directors, major stars. You know, there's two kinds of working writers. There's writers who chase the job and then, the writers that the jobs chase them. And that's an A-list writer. When, when the major networks and studios want to be working with you, 
mm-hmm. and major directors want to be working with you. This can happen with a hit TV show. So now the question is, if you're a writer, you'd love to see your, your script get packaged. And that's what agents are most excited about now because that's where all the money is for them. So what kind of scripts get packaged? Well, let's just look at True Detective and the Nick as examples. If you're Woody Harrelson or Clive Owen or Matthew McConaughey, you know, you have, you're, you have a nice, strong feature uh, career that pays you lots of money. You're going to get paid less money in TV. Um, do you want to go do some copy version of a successful TV show? No. The only thing that would tempt you is characters you've never seen before that you'd love to play a world you've never seen before that you just love to live within. You're looking for something pitch perfect, authentic, something unique and powerful. That's what lures Steven Sonnenberg into the mix. Um, and so all the more reason why if you're a new writer looking to break in TV, really want to avoid a lot of the, you know, a lot of the books and the classes are, the information is so many years old and it's, it's so radically different now. And it's about incredibly powerful characters and incredibly unique, powerful characters, unique, powerful world, and a really unique, powerfully told story. And that's a lot easier said than done. And there's a reason why most writers can't do that, can't do all of it. And, you know, we'll talk about that shortly. But so in terms of the TV industry, it is, it's going like gangbusters. I, in the last three weeks, uh, nine of my students have sold pilots. Um, at least three have been staffed on TV shows. Actually, four. Um, and there's a lot of there's a lot of there's a lot of writers breaking in the business of the TV market. But it's important to know what targets to shoot at. Right. Absolutely. Now, since you've mentioned, we'll definitely get to creative integration. But since you mentioned just now. Uh, a number of your uh, students having sold pilots and staffed on shows, uh, both in television and features. What are some uh, effective strategies for breaking into into uh, screenwriting or TV writing? Right. So I think that too many people spend too much time trying to solve the access matrix as opposed to developing the skill sets to become qualified. So, for instance, and, and you have to be careful because there's entire industries out there right. that basically say, the reason you're not working is lack of access. Right, now, absolutely. give me money, right, we'll help you. But it, it'd literally be like me saying, I'd love to be a brain surgeon, good money, good hours, good prestige, and then spending a year or two trying to figure out how to get the right interview. And, and I succeed, and I'm getting the right interviews, but I, don't, I never went to medical school, so I'm not qualified for the job. Right. The, the reality is when you talk to managers and agents, um, and principally managers, because in terms of reading scripts from people who are trying to break into the business, it's, it's more, a manager is more willing to do that than an agent. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, they'll tell you 99, more than 99% of those folks are not qualified. They're, they're writing... And qualified obviously doesn't mean going to the right schools or the right, like, nobody cares when I went to UCLA. Uh, nobody cares what my GPA is. I don't even know what my GPA was in film school. You know, it's all about the script. I have a student 
in South Africa. She's a grandmother. She just sold a pilot. I mean, she never gone to film school. Like it, it's, it's not about who you know, and it's not about networking. It's about your material. And a story I like to tell that underscores this is I have a student. Um, I'm, I'm going to call her Wendy. That's not her name. And she's, she's just super articulate. Uh, she's just this amazing, wonderful woman. And she's married to one of the top tax attorneys in L.A. And this guy's clients are who's who in Hollywood. Um, Wendy has, I mean, they throw parties at their house where you know, A-list directors come, um, major studio executives, TV executives. I mean, Wendy has access. Wendy's lunches with these people. And Wendy is one of my students. Um, and she's a good writer, but she's not yet a great writer. And in the last three years, you know, how many scripts have she sold? How many writing jobs has she gotten? None. Zero. And I don't care how hard you work, you're never going to be more plugged in than Wendy. You know, she has access she could literally pick up the phone and get pretty much anyone in the business to call her. And she could, she could go to lunch with pretty much anyone in the business. And she does. Um, and she's never booked a writing gig because she's a good writer. She's not a great writer. So the, the most important strategy is for writers to figure out what's their strengths, what's their weaknesses, and what's their blind spots as a writer. Blind spots are weaknesses you don't know them how. And then how do you turn those weaknesses into strengths? Um, and I know a lot of people don't want to hear that. They, they want to hear, how do I get an agent? How do I get a manager? Right. Um, so I'm teaching a workshop right now, and there are five people in the workshop who have agents. Um, and so I just asked each, I went around all of them, I said, how did you get your agent? And with one exception, it was the same answer, which is when you parse out their answer, it was, Someone who had a relationship with an agent who had read my script and thought it was really great gave the script to an agent and said, you should read this. The, the one exception was someone who had gone through, I think, the Warner Brothers TV program. You know, mm-hmm. the, 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 right. So, but other than that, and, and so how did I get my agent is um, the executive who was running Meg Ryan's company back in the late nineties when Meg Ryan was a major star, read my script and gave it to agents and said, I think this is real good. You should read this script. And I had an agent within two days. Um, so the way to get an agent is to have someone read your script and give that to an agent and say, you really should read this. So then the question is great. How do I get those people to read the script? That's not, that hard to do or let me put it a different way maybe it is hard to do but it's much easier than being able to write a script that when they read it they're willing to put the reputation online to go give it to an agent and say you really should read it so at the end of the day it's all about the material right and writers really need to learn to invest their time and energy to be able to write the right kind of material um, which means amazing characters, amazing roles, and amazing story. When someone can do that, here's the thing. Managers are looking for you. Mm-hmm. HBO has hired uh, one or two executives to go out and find new writers because of this competition I was talking about. And they're scouring the blogs. They're, they're reading specs. They're going to one-act plays. They're out there aggressively looking for new writers who can write to the standard. 
Um, I constantly get managers calling me saying, what should your student scripts should I be reading? I know managers that send people to these big conventions and pitch fests, and they say, I know, you know, there's maybe one out of 500 writers there who are any good. I know it's looking for a needle in a haystack, but we're looking for those needles. So the thing is, I hear all these people say it's so hard to get an agent, so hard to get an agent, no one so hard to get a manager, no one wants to read your work. And then I hang out with managers, and they're saying it's so hard to find new great writers, it's so hard to find new great writers. Right. The the demand for new great writers far exceeds the supply. So, and I think that the mistake writers make is they get seduced by the idea of I go to the right pitch fest or go to the right contest or write the right query letter or do the right marketing and networking, then I'll get there. And, and they do all of that. A lot of that makes no difference, but, but let's say they, 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 they do find the right strategy they, they put, you put enough effort into it, you're going to find someone who will be willing to read your script. It's, it's not as impossible as people think. They right. do all that. Somebody reads their script, and they're like, eh, it's good. It's not great. And all, not only was all that time and energy wasted, writers get blacklisted every day without realizing it. I know so many agents who say, if you move mountains to get me to read your script, and it is not truly exceptional, I and no one in my agency will ever represent you. We're not going to tell you that, but you're blacklisted. And the reason isn't because, it's not because if you're not great today, you might not be great tomorrow. No, agents realize that writers can develop and get better. The reason is most agents don't want to be in the stupid writer business. And from an agent's perspective, if you, you know, when you're in an assignment, you have to turn the script in in a certain amount of time because you're getting paid and there's a contract. If you're looking to break into the business, you decide when you're good enough. There's no, there's no ticking clock. You decide. And if you move mountains to get me to read your script and it's not good enough, then you're stupid. And the reality is, as someone who knows a lot of writers, it's often not stupidity. It's more um, listening to the wrong people, hiring the wrong script consultant, uh, fixed mindset, impatience. Um, there's a lot of reasons why writers think their material is better than they think it is. And it isn't usually stupidity, but I know that's how agents often see it. And they just don't want to be in the stupid client you know, business. They want, they want to represent not only great writers, but they want to write, they want to represent writers who know how to play the game. And, mm-hmm. savvy. Um, and so from their perspective, if you move mountains to get your one first shot with me, you only get one first shot. There's not a second shot. And this is the script that you did it with. It's, it's over. I don't, you know, it'd be like an incredibly sought after woman who can get a date with anyone she wanted. And you move mountains to get a first date with her and you make a bad first impression. You know, you have bad hygiene. <laughs> you talk right. about your porn addiction. <laughs> You're not getting a second date with that woman. I don't care what happens. She just, she's so highly thought after. She's not giving you a second date. You're blacklisted. And not only from her, probably from her friends as well. Right. And that's what happens with writers all the time. So sorry to sound like a broken record. And it's the last time I'll say it. Um, access doesn't matter if you're not qualified. And most writers think they're qualified before they actually are. We talked about that in the first podcast. So mm-hmm. once again, if you haven't heard it, you might want to swing back to that because I talked about how you can tell if you're qualified or not and what kind of 
you know, what to be careful about with script consultants and what kind of readers to hire. So um, if you haven't listened to the first podcast, you might want to take a swing back at that. Yeah. Uh, and just talk, touching base on the competition level, you had mentioned HBO hiring some executives who sole purpose is to find newer writers. I was talking to Lee Jessup, uh, I don't know, a few months ago, maybe, and she had just mentioned the HBO, uh, I guess, had a fellowship, a contest where writers could submit um, material and they would take a certain number of submissions. I don't remember how many, you know, a couple thousand submissions. Um, and the day that that competition opened, the servers crashed from so much uh, traffic. And right. literally by the next day, it was full. I mean, even after all the crashes, all the issues that they had, because there was so much interest that, you know, they were going to accept a few thousand submissions or something like that. There was no set deadline. It was just when we receive a few thousand submissions, we'll shut it off. Right. The next day, it was shut off. And the first day that it opened, it couldn't shut off because there was too much traffic. The ser servers were crashing. So it just shows right. you how much competition is out there. Um, so you really right. have to have outstanding get, material. Right. And the thing, the thing to understand, you're absolutely, the thing to understand is you only get one first impression. And so what happens is people are so frenzied to break in. They're so frenzied to, you know, so many writers are like, I don't know if I even really have what it takes. So let me... Let me take my best shot, go out there, and if, it, if, if, if I have what it takes, I'll find out. And if I don't, okay, I'll, I'll go do something else. You know, I don't want to think five, ten years, fifteen years into the, um, you know, because for a lot of people, pursuing writing means that they're not pursuing something else that they can be pursuing. And I get it. It's not stupidity. I, I get why writers do it. I, I know what it's like to be a new writer, really wanting a career, and in some days thinking, I really have a shot and other days thinking I'm completely fooling myself. I, I know what that's like. And I know what it's like to want to, it's like you want to go take the entrance test and see what score you get. And, and then you can decide, you know, if you want to pursue this or not, I get that. It's, it's, it's a huge mistake because what it does is it leads writers to go out with material that's not even close to where it needs to be. And they get, um, they, they screw up the first impression. These coverages are databased. They get blacklisted. And it's just unfortunate because if they had waited and they had developed themselves and they'd gotten their writing ability to where it needed to be, it might have been a really different outcome. One of my favorite managers says, when we sign a new writer, our primary task is to protect that writer from themselves and to not let that writer show anything to anyone in the industry. We, we sign a new writer and we tell them, you are going off grid. You don't exist. Um, and the worst thing that happens is they have relationships because they've done a lot of networking and, mm -hmm. and there'll be some executive out there or whoever will say, hey, love to read your script. And the writer says, yes, now the writer has made a commitment to show something to that person. And from the manager's point of view, like that's the worst thing. Now we'll step in and mitigate it. But I see it all the time where writers they're so frenzied in the marketing and the networking side of things. It hurts them because they actually do get people to say, yeah, show me your script. And they show the script and they never hear from that person again. And those bridges are burned and their reputation is damaged. It's like a credit score. Right. It follows with you for seven years or longer. <laughs> right. Um, 
Now, talking about uh, strengths, weaknesses, and we've been hinting at but haven't gotten to it yet, so this is a great opportunity to talk about creative integration, uh, meaning sure. uh, some writers are better at uh, you know, dialogue and, and characters, and some of them more better are much better, not more better, much better with story and concept and set pieces and things like that. Um, how do you integrate the two? If you are really strong in one, but not as good at the other, um, how do you become good at both? Or how do you work Great. within those limitations? I'm glad you came to this. This is my favorite topic. And as a teacher, it, it's how I've designed my program. And it's what I most love doing and working with writers because it's literally where transformation occurs. It's literally where people will call me on a regular basis and say, you know, my agent just read my script or my manager or my spouse or my writing group. And they said, you know, something along the lines of, I love you, but I can't believe you wrote this script because you don't write characters that amazing. Or you, you don't write stories that crisp and strong and page, page turning. Like this, this is, did you really write the script? It's just, it's literally unbelievable. Mm -hmm. So to back up, there's two basic writing muscles, two spaces we write from, the conceptual or the intuitive. And almost every writer I've worked with is wired to be stronger in one than the other, and they tend to hang out in their strengths. They tend to hang out in their home base. So conceptual writers tend to work outside in, and intuitive writers tend to work inside out, and that makes a dramatic difference. So what, what exactly does that mean? So conceptual writers, when I work with a conceptual writer, um, and I'll always ask a writer when I'm, let's say, doing a script consultation, why did you write this script? Like, what, what was exciting to you? A conceptual writer will talk about an idea, a premise. I had this what if. Um, we'll talk about stories. I'll talk about uh, a good plot twist, a surprise ending. Um, they'll talk about an intellectual world or theme they wanted to explore. When I work with an intuitive writer, it's very different. They'll talk about the reason they were excited to write it was character or or to explore some emotion. Um, and they're talking, intuitive writers tend to work from a place of what's really compelling to them. And they make their decisions based on lots of instincts and impulses. Uh, conceptual writers tend to be more focused on what's interesting to other people, really big ideas, um, unique ideas, great comic set pieces, big action set pieces, what have you. Very different, a very different experience that the writers have. If you could track like, how they come up with what to write, how they write it, the decision process. And the outcome, the product is very different. Uh, I can read like two pages and know exactly what space a writer's in at this point because I've been doing this so long. Mm -hmm. So let's talk about some of the issues. Conceptual writers, they invent characters. They create characters. Often they create the best characters to serve the story. And as a result, their characters always feel written. They, they often feel like puppets to some extent. Characters who are doing insane things at places to serve the story because that is what happens. Right. Whereas when you work with an intuitive writer, they don't invent characters. They don't discover characters. They, I'm sorry, they don't invent or create characters. They discover characters. These characters are real people to them. Um, and so it's a very different experience when you read their scripts. And 
the dialogue is a very different experience. So with intuitive writers, each character has a unique voice, where with conceptual writers, most of the characters sound somewhat similar. It's a very different experience. And conceptual writers, no matter what they do, they can't usually seem to get their characters or dialogue as strong as they want. That's their weakness, and they often know it. And it's frustrating because they're great at concept, they're great at structure, but they can't get their characters and dialogue to where they need to. On the opposite side, intuitive writers have generally really great characters and really great dialogue. They just don't have great stories. Um, it doesn't all hold together. There's, it, nothing really interesting is consistently happening. And most intuitive writers know that, and they don't know what to do about it. Even worse, when you look at a conceptually written script, there's all these really interesting things happening. Conceptual writers are very focused on, you know, this happens and this happens and this happens, and each of those events are interesting and compelling. And they're very focused on story logic and causality and setups and builds and payoffs, um, all good, important story tools. So when you read their script, you can tell, man, this writer is smart, and they spend so much time coming up with lots of interesting things that happen, it's just not that interesting to read the script. Mm -hmm. And the reason it's not that interesting to read the script is you don't really feel anything. And the reason you don't really feel anything is because the writer didn't really feel anything when they wrote it. Um, And you can tell that. Where you read an intuitive writer's script, and they bleed on the page. It's just, it's scattered. It's kind of not focused and generally it's a bunch of people sitting around having heartfelt conversations. I don't care how interesting the characters or dialogue is at some point, you just want to shoot yourself and not keep reading that script. Right. So what happens is most writers without realizing it practice creative disintegration, which is to say, here's a universal truth. When we write scripts, I know you're a writer as well. We're trying to write the best possible script we can write. So if we've been hired, we obviously want to write a script that our employers love and making, you know, and the script gets made. Um, if we have agents or managers, we're writing scripts that we hope the agents and managers fall in love with and can take out to the marketplace and either sell or as a head turning writing example, you know, get a staff or get us a future job. If we don't have an agent or a manager, we're hoping that the script we write can change that. Even a writer who's brand new who says, hey, I'm not ready for an agent or a manager. I'm not ready for the marketplace. I know that. They're still trying to write a script. They're still trying to write a script that, you know, the people in their lives will read and give the right kind of feedback that at least lets that writer know, I'm not completely wasting my time. I I have some shot at this. So we're all trying to write the best things that we can. And here's the thing. If we're trying to write the best possible scripts that we can, then what we will do is we will play to our strengths and we will hide our weaknesses. And that's, that's just smart. That's just, you know, if you're an athlete and you're competing, you always want to play your strengths and try to hide your weaknesses. A football coach always tries to play the strengths of the team, hide the weaknesses. That's going to, it's just smart if you're trying to get the best possible outcome. But over time as a writer, if you keep playing to your strengths and you keep hiding your weaknesses, your strengths get stronger and your weaknesses get weaker. And that's why most writers have this like ceiling they can't get through in their writing. And, you know, conceptual writers get stronger and stronger conceptually and weaker and weaker intuitively and vice versa. So what I do with my students is creative integration, 
the first step is I make writers write to their weakness and hide their strength. And that's difficult, but they can do it. And so, you know, if I'm right-handed, which I am, and I tied my right hand behind my back for a month, and all I did was use my left hand, you know, the productivity of my life would decline. You know, I, I had to drink with my <laughs> right hand, I had to write, but, but over time, my, right, my left hand would get stronger and stronger, and eventually it can become as strong as my right hand, and then I can not finish it the two. So the first step is turning that weakness into a strength. Mm-hmm. Um, and, it, and we can talk more about that, but it absolutely can be done. And at that point, when a writer now is as strong intuitively as conceptually or vice versa, then the next step, and this is the most difficult step, is the integration of the two. But you can't integrate unless both sides are equally strong. Um, but the cool thing about integration is it becomes becomes like a drug because most writers, not all, but most writers, they have days where it's like a flow day. It's like they're writing a wave. It's like everything's coming out and it's just great. And and you just wish you could live in those days. And then other days, you know, you're pounding your head against the wall trying to draw blood from a cell. Nothing's happening. And then most days are like somewhere in between the two. Um, when writers can work through creative integration, those flow days become the majority. You, 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 it's not all the time, but it becomes the majority of the time. Um, because you start bringing everything into alignment. You, as you're writing, you know, there's what would be the strongest story choice, but there's also what would the character authentically do? And then, you know, there's what, what I'd be most interested in. And then, and that last, what I'd be most interested in, there's what my conceptual side would be most interested in, and what would my intuitive side be most interested in. And this goes on all the time with writers internally, but they're not aware of it. They haven't been trained. And what happens more often than not is they're getting conflicting answers. So, you know, what's best for the story is one thing, but what the character would actually do might be something different. And what they themselves are most interested in might be even something different. And those are struggles. The the wave days, the flow days, is when everything's in alignment. And that doesn't happen very often for most writers. Creatively integrated writers, it happens on a much more regular basis. And when it doesn't happen, they have the tools to bring things into alignment. So the writers that I've worked with who are creatively integrated, you know, A their material is so much stronger because they write scripts where you love these characters and you would just want to spend time with the characters regardless of the story and you love the story and you want to spend time with the story regardless of the characters. Those are magical scripts. So that's the gold standard. And not only are they writing those on a consistent or somewhat consistent basis, um, they're, they're more prolific and they have a more connected experience to the writing. They're, they're less prone to procrastination uh, self-sabotage, um, you know, and all that other fun stuff. So it's really an amazing process. And what I've discovered is most writers left to their own devices are practicing the opposite. They're practicing, as I said, creative disintegration because they're always trying to write the best possible script as opposed to under- take a step back and say, look, if I wanted to be an improviser and I went to Groundlings or Second City or up front, 
they don't put me on stage right away. It takes about a year and a half to get on stage because for a year and a half, you have to develop the processes and the skills and the tools that will eventually combine to let you get on stage and be an improviser. You can't get on stage and improvise. And what's going on in writing is that most writers say, well, I want to be a professional writer. So they just get on stage and they start improvising and they can't figure out why no one cares and why they can't get a career. They're not strong enough. Now, if we took, you know, uh, 50,000 people and put them all on stage and said, improvise, maybe one or two of them would be amazing at it, just, just amazing at it. Great, we'll hire those two and we'll ignore everyone else. Well, that's great if you're that one or two, but it ain't so great if you're, if you're not. Right. And so, because I have found some writers who will come study with me and they're creatively integrated. And either they work with a manager to do that or they just somehow came to that. Uh, maybe they don't even know how. They just are that way. It's very rare. And those are the writers that in very short order, I can help with story design and then whatever little things they, they can get there really quickly. But for everyone else, it's the path of, you know, of doing the work, the creative integration work. It takes time. It isn't easy, but it tra it's transformative. Right. Absolutely. Because of those 50,000 people that you take out of the audience and put them on stage and the one or two stands out immediately, the other 49,998 still want to be writers and still think that they're ready for right. the stage. And that's part of the problem. Exactly. Exactly. And, and, and so that's their problem. Here's our problem. Our problem is that many of them never figure out the kind of training they need. They're, they're led astray with formula and a bunch of rules and they end up quitting. You know, they'll end up getting on stage a bunch of times, nothing happens. And then they just say, well, I don't have what it takes. And they or, quit. Or they'll say, well, if, if Lauren Michaels were in the audience, then I would definitely get on Saturday Night Live, but he's not. So how can I get Lauren Michaels in the audience? Exactly. And, and they play that game. And eventually, maybe, they, maybe Lauren Michaels is in the audience. And they still don't make it. And so eventually, eventually, they quit. And here's the thing. How many of those writers who quit, that if they had done the proper training, if they had developed themselves, could have written the next, American Beauty or the next Game of Thrones or the next Sopranos or the next girl. Like, like we're deprived of those experiences, which I think is really sad. That's a big reason why I teach because I, I believe, you know, that we need more diverse individuals who have a true passion for storytelling and characters to be trained to the best of their ability to be able to tell stories and, and characters and worlds and share them to the best of the ability so that we're not deprived of some of those projects. Yeah, absolutely. Um, although that answer is very different than I hear from, uh, uh, some agents and managers who uh, have to read, filter through a lot of, of this material that's not ready, right. that wish some of them would just go yeah. away. But no, I, I get what you're saying. Um, no, well, I, I think, yeah, I mean, well, what I think, I think where the common ground is, is what we all would wish is that 
there'd be some, some at-home kit that a writer could use to determine if their scripts are good enough. If, if they're writing to the level you write to, and if they're not, they don't go out and try to get people to read it. Because the complaints that writers have is all the walls that stand between them and the agent or the manager. And those walls are very real. I used to be a reader. I used to be one of the gatekeepers um, before I broke into business. Those walls exist because 99% of the people are throwing stuff out there that isn't even, it's not worth anyone's time to read. And so if writers stopped doing that, the walls would come down. You know, if we could, if we could have an idealized world, which we won't. Um, but instead, yeah, there's just too many people out there who think that their stuff is ready. And, and the thing is, is, you know, a lot of the, a lot of those scripts are just terrible. They're just absolutely terrible. But, right. but there's a fair amount of those scripts that aren't. There's a fair amount of scripts that are pretty darn good. Um, they're just following, you know, the four square, save the cat, whatever. It's just, there's a genericness to them. They don't understand. Uh, authentic organic story design or the characters feel, you know, I, I have a, a student who's now in a, they just, they had a movie come out that's very successful. So they're now looking at lots of comedy scripts and they're saying, God, there's all these, look at these new writers. I'd love to give a new writer a break. And there's these scripts that are so funny and it's a great concept for a comedy and great set pieces, but there's no heart to it. And these characters feel like they were, almost lifted from other scripts. It's like, oh, that's a carbon copy, slightly different version of the dude from The Big Lebowski or from this movie. And those are conceptual writers who are really funny and really smart, great concepts, great set pieces. But those characters are not where they need to be if you're trying to break into business. And so here's a director who has access to established, successful writers who on principle, makes time and energy to read some new writer's work because he was a new writer two years ago, so he gets it. Um, and it's like he's reading the best of these new writers, and he's like, yeah, they're conceptually so great. They're intuitively so underdeveloped. Or he'll complain about a script to read where, like, oh, now these were great characters. It was funny, but you could feel the pain, but it, nothing was really happening. There was no good set pieces. And it's, it, it, you hear this all the time. It's like, if only these writers could like get, if you get the best of both writers and bring them together into one writer. Um, and, and that's an, that would be another example of integration, the best of both worlds. And those writers, they're working. And many of them are working at the highest level. Right. And talking about, uh, going back to competition quickly, talking about that HBO contest, if they received a few thousand submissions in one day, and even assuming that 80% of them were garbage, okay. two, 200 plus, two to 400 you know, of the 3,000 or whatever may be good. Of those, how many mm -hmm. are really great? If they have 10 slots, even if they have you know, 80% were garbage, that still leaves uh, a good, you know, Two, four, two, three, four hundred scripts that are good, and of those, how many are truly great? But the, you know, again, if they have ten slots, it's going to make the competition. It's it's still a tough competition, even if you weed out the bottom eighty percent, which again, most people aren't are probably right. you know. Well, I'll, I'll put it this way: I, I have no inside information on that front, but I do 
know people who similar programs, I'm not going to name them. And I know because they share this completely off the record, but often what will happen in those situations is they'll take 10 people and they feel like four of them, they only found four really, truly great scripts out Mm -hmm. of the, and then four of the slots are like, they're pretty darn close. Mm -hmm. And two of the slots are like, honestly, like these people would, if we'd had more great, Writers, these two people wouldn't even been there. We're, just, right. we're using these two to round it out. Um, I'm not saying that's true of HBO. Maybe HBO has 10 absolutely. I, don't, I have no idea. But I know from other programs that their complaint is, even with the five or 10,000 applicants that we got, we couldn't find 10 yeah. truly great scripts. And in fact, one of the programs that I know, um, which I have a lot of respect for, they... They take, you know, 10, 20,000 applicants for 10 slots. But most years when that program goes off, they don't take 10 people. They'll take six. They'll take mm-hmm. five. Like, they just won't take someone unless they think that writer got that spot. So that's amazing because this is the program I'm talking about. It's very inexpensive to enter into this contest. It's not cost prohibitive. And it's a very well-known uh, thing that everybody is very highly sought after. That's all of it. It's not HBO, but it's, it's very highly sought after. And they can't find 10 great new writers. And that's, um, that says everything you need to know. Because when you go onto the online chat forums, you go to parties in LA or New York, you just hear the hordes of writers who say, it's so hard to break in the business. It's so hard. Here's the thing. If you're truly a great writer, it ain't hard to break in the business. I see it done all the time with my students and clients, all the time. It isn't hard. Yes, you can't just sit at home and they'll find you. No, you have to do some legwork and some marketing and that, but it's not hard. If you're close to being a great writer, it is hard, but possible. If you're not close to being a great writer, it's not hard, it's just impossible. And the problem is you've got hordes of people who in their mind, they are, they're as good as, Vince Gilligan or Alan Ball or they, they think they generally think their script's great. Their friends think their script is great. Writing group thinks their script is great. They were the best writer in their MFA program. They hired some script consultants with really great sounding credentials who told them how great their script is. So understandably, they believe their script is amazing. It's not. It's really good. It's it's you know on a on a on a, on a grading curve, it's, you know, in the top 5%. It's better than the vast majority, but it isn't where it needs to be. And they don't know that. They, they believe it is where it needs to be. And they're not getting traction. They're, they're not getting an agent or a manager. Maybe they get a sort of lower-level manager, but then that manager stops paying attention to them. They get some meetings, but nothing happens. And so they walk around understandably saying, well, my writing's as good as this person or that person, but nothing's happening for me. Why? And then they have lots of reasons. And it could be because you got to live in LA or it's who you know, or it's all luck or it's who you sleep with, or it's, it's, it's your age or it's, it's what you write or um, whatever it is, or if they don't, you know, it's impossible to get an agent, whatever. There's all these excuses out there. And the reality is these writers are over-evaluating the quality of their own material. And sometimes it's not their fault because people are telling them 
how great it is uh, as part of their business model. And, um, and so it creates this like toxic cloud of despair. Mm-hmm. And what's amazing is like that toxic cloud is still there, even though HBO is buying 200 pilots this year. And then when you add up all that, I mean, there's so much opportunity in TV right now that honestly writers who actually aren't great, not even close to great. They're like one step below that. They're selling pilots because the demand is so, you know, there's such a boom right now mm-hmm. um, that, that, you know, when, when the TV market starts to cool off, those people are going to get locked out. But right now, um, I mean, there are scripts that are being bought that you read them and you're like, I see the idea, I see the concept, but these characters of this story, it's pretty weak. And if you talk to the executives, they're like, oh, yeah, we know that, but we'll develop it. And if this writer can't cut it, we'll bring somebody else in. And we're willing to invest, you know, $100,000 to, to see if we can't get this to where it needs to be because there's so much demand for these projects. Everyone's buying these projects. Um, so the point is, like, if you can't find work in the TV market right now, then then you need to develop your writing. There, there's something on your end. And yet, you know, that's not the way people choose to see it. And so, you know, anyone who's listening to this who's a newer writer, I'd really suggest, because it can be discouraging, just try to tune out all the negativity and the complaints that are out there and, and just keep training. And your mission is to understand your strengths, understand your weaknesses, understand your blind spots, which are weaknesses you don't know you have. And I'll guarantee you something. Every writer who started out, including current A-list writers who you have nothing but respect for, I guarantee you when they started out, they had strengths, weaknesses, and blind spots. Everybody, nobody talks about it, but everybody starts there. Mm-hmm. Your job is to figure out what your weaknesses are and how to turn them into strengths. Figure out what your blind spots are, turn those into strengths. The most valuable thing you can do is find someone or people in your life who can help you with that process because it's, I know people who have done it on their own and it takes, most of them, you know, it took them eight, nine, ten years um, to figure it out, to improve their writing, to start consistently writing the kinds of, the quality that they needed to and then, you know, to get discovered and launch careers. And I know some writers who, um, have A-list careers right now, or if not A-list careers, you know, are making three, four, five hundred thousand dollars a year consistently in TV or features, who took them eight or nine years or ten years to break in the business. The majority of that eight, nine, or ten years, let's say, you know, six years or seven years of that was figuring all this stuff out. Mm-hmm. And then two years, two or three years was now writing the kinds of scripts they need to write and hustling and, you know, finally getting it all lined up for them. Um, like w- once a writer can write really, truly great script, it, the cycle is usually from that point to three years to break in the business. It, it you know, at that point, when you can write truly great script, you'll attract a manager. Uh, you'll get an agent. Uh, maybe it sells. It probably doesn't. You get lots of meetings. Maybe you get staffed. Maybe you sell a pitch. Maybe you get hired in the future. Maybe you don't. So then you have to write another script. And then you go through that cycle again. If you go through that cycle three times, 
with three truly great scripts and nothing's happened for you, you either have a lot of bad luck and you just need to go that fourth cycle or take a look in the mirror and maybe you don't play well with others and you're turning people off and learn. Um, if you, if you play well with others, three or four cycles, three or four of these scripts, going out in all these meetings, meeting with showrunners, uh, meeting on the feature side, it's, it's going to happen. You're, you're going to break in and get your shot. Now, what you do with your shot is a completely different story. So let's say for most, almost every writer I know who's working, from the moment they were able to write to the level that you need to, the moment they became qualified, we're talking about one to three years on average. It, it could take less. It took less for me because I was really lucky. Um, it could take it could take longer than three years. That means you got really unlucky. But one to three years, I'd say 90% of the writers I know, I know hundreds of working writers, they're within that one, that one to three year range. But that's once you become qualified. That's once you can write to that level. Now, if you start out and you can't write to that level, how long does it take you to get there? And for most writers, the answer is they never get there. Mm-hmm. And for the writers who do get there and they figure it out on their own, you know, it's usually a five to six year process. If you can find the right teacher, and I'm going to plug my class in a little bit, so certainly your listeners feel free to, you know, take this with a grain of salt that, you know, this is a big self-promotion part, but if you can find the right teacher and they can expedite that learning curve, that teacher's worth their weight in gold. If you can find an experienced writer who's willing to mentor you and can help you expedite that learning curve, they're worth the weight in gold. If you can find a manager, that's how most writers do. If you find a manager who can help expedite that learning curve, they're worth the weight in gold. But for reasons I already discussed, it's harder to find a manager who's qualified in that development who will have the time and energy to spend on you. Um, it's possible, but that, that means you're going to find a manager who really believes in you. I, so it's, it, it's harder. It's harder to find a manager who can do that. Um, not impossible, but it's harder. Um, but those are the, so the people who found a teacher or an experienced writer as a mentor or a manager, then that five or six years maybe could be cut down to one or two years. So that is, you know, that's why it becomes so valuable. That's the thing to be focusing on, not, get caught up. People can waste so much time and energy on, oh, what's the right pitch fest to go to? You know, nobody sells a pitch at a pitch fest. You know, what's the right screenwriting competition? People do get noticed from screenwriting competitions and some of them end up with careers because they were qualified. But most of the people who win or place high in screenwriting contests, they get meetings, they maybe even get an agent, but they don't get a career because nobody in the industry cares what you did in a screenwriting contest. They only care if you were qualified. Um, so I'm not trying to say don't enter screenwriting contests. Uh, I wouldn't waste a lot of money and time doing it. But yeah, a screenwriting contest could definitely, uh, a high-profile screenwriting contest could be a viable way of getting people's attention. But here's the point. There's no point in getting an interview if you haven't gone to medical school if you're trying to be a doctor, right? Or there's no point in getting Lauren Green. I love your example. There's no point in getting Lauren Green or Lauren Green's casting agent in the audience if you're not if you're not ready to be hired. And you might be a great improviser and you might be the best improviser in your improv group. 
But that doesn't matter. You have to be better than everyone that they're looking at around the country. And so that's the thing that writers don't get. You might have been the best writer in your MFA program. You might be the best writer in your writing group. You might be the best writer amongst your friends. That is great, but nobody cares because that's not your competition. Right. Your competition is Alan Ball, Vince Gilligan, Lena Dern. Um, and so you have to be able to compete against those people. And that's the level that writers need to hit. And the cool thing is if you can do that and you're a new writer, you are the most sought after commodity because you're still cheap. Yeah. I mean, I have students that I work with, like, oh, they'll start out and, you know, on the feature side, they'll sell something, get hired, and they're making $75,000 and making $100,000. Two years later, three years later, they're making $300,000 a year. Something gets made, and next thing you know, they're making millions of dollars a year. So, you know, if you're a studio, someone who can compete at that level that you can get for $100,000, that's what they're all fighting for. Like, that's, that's why managers are looking for those writers. Um, so to be a new writer who can write it at that level, it'd be like Lauren Green could, um, I'm sorry, Lauren Michaels, Lauren Green wouldn't work. Lauren Michaels could, could, could bring you into starting at life for one year, you know, at, at 5% what he has to pay everybody else. Now, he knows at the end of that year, he's going to have to pay you a lot more, but he's going to get a, a year out of you at a, at a, at a, you know, much reduced rate. And if he can get two new cast members like that, by the way, I'm not suggesting that. I, I have no idea how sorry that was. But we're just doing a metaphor here. Um, but just think about it. If, if you if you were an agent or manager and you could call Lauren Michaels and say, I know you have a couple slots open for the next season. I have someone who will blow you away. They will be as good as anyone you have, and they're going to cost a heck of a lot less money right. um, for the first year or two. If you're Lauren Michaels, you're sending a top lieutenant out to check that person out. Right. And to throw a, a sports metaphor, which I always like to do, um, the value of someone like um, a Mike Trout, who, you know, now he's on a bigger deal. But when he was on his rookie deal, producing huge numbers is invariably more valuable to a club, a baseball team, than somebody like an Albert Pujols, who, again, when they first both started on playing for the Angels, they, you know, Pujols still had huge numbers, but his contract was massive. So right. Trout, you could trade to anybody, any other team in the league, and they would give you a king's ransom. But Pujols is difficult to right. move because his contract is so much. You get the same production, but you get Mike Trout at one twentieth the price. Absolutely. And so. if I can match a baseball metaphor with another, my wife uh, has a cousin named Lance, and he was the... Uh, he grew up in the Northeast. He was the uh, rated the number one high school baseball player in the country, the high school player. He was defensively and offensively the number one prospect. He didn't go to college. He signed a big contract with the New York Yankees right out of high school. It was amazing. And, you know, he started out in minor league ball, and he dominated. He, he Offensively and defensively, he just dominated. And I forget how, how long he was in minor league ball, but eventually they brought him up to the big leagues, to the Yankees. He played in the Yankees. And um, defensively, he didn't dominate, but he was really good. I think he was an outfielder. Offensively, he couldn't hit. He couldn't hit major league. He just couldn't hit. 
And they gave him the best batting uh, coaches, and all, and he couldn't hit. So he dropped him back down the minors to develop his hitting, get his confidence back, and he started knocking home runs. Knocking, they brought him back up. He couldn't hit. He couldn't hit. They brought him, dropped him back down the same thing. They brought him up for one last shot. He couldn't hit, and that was it. He was out of baseball. And I remember asking him, like, what's the difference between the best minor league pitching and your average major league pitching. I know people can't see me, but I'm holding my fingers up and I'm holding them up pretty close together. It's not a, it's not a huge gap. Mm-hmm. Um, and so he's like, it's, it's this gap and it's not very big. But you know, for him, that gap was the biggest gap of his life because he couldn't close it. Right. And so my point is with writers, and I hear this from managers all the time, you know, when they sign new talents, they're signing the best new talent they can. And again, they're often signing the person who was the star at the MFA program, best writer in their group of friends and writers group, a writer who's super impressive. Now the gap between that writer and a writer who's sought after in the industry might be not that big of a gap, but a lot of these folks can't close that gap. Mm-hmm. And that's why they can't launch or sustain careers. Cause that's a whole different conversation that we can have on another podcast if you want, which is 80% of writers who launch careers don't sustain careers. So oh, yeah. that's, you know, the, the, the point isn't to launch a career. The point is to have a career. And often when people launch careers, the reason they can't sustain careers is that gap. And that gap might not be very big, but if you can't trend transverse it, it's huge. And again, um, and not that creative integration is, the only skill set, and you know, we talked about some in the past that happy to come on and talk about others in the future. Um, my website is coreymandel.net, and if anyone's listening, you can go there. I have, a, I have a, um, a list of what I believe are the essential skill sets to launch a sustaining career, and there's a bunch of blog posts on it, so you can check more of that out. I'd love to come back in you know, down the road and we can talk about more of them. But I think creative integration is the most powerful skill set. So the good news is there are things that writers can do to improve, to constantly improve themselves. And the writers, when I go speak at a big event and I get a queue of writers afterwards who want to ask me questions, most of the questions they ask me are access questions. How did you get your agent? Right. Will you show my script to your agent? How did you get a manager? And, but there's always like two or three of them who their question will be process. It'll be development. It'll be, how do I actually do creative integration or, or how, what can I do to get better? What can I do to become a better writer? And I would bet on those three people, you know, much more than bet on any of the other people because they get it. They get it, which is, and I always think about that, the Lindy person that I talked about, you know, I know in a lot of businesses, who you know and networking and access really matters. And we can all think of examples in businesses where maybe people who aren't the best at what they do, but they're so well marketed and so well connected, they have huge careers and they might be far more successful than someone who's exceptional at what they do, but isn't as connected and doesn't market as well. I absolutely, but in the writing game, you know, if, if I'm a showrunner, and I'm running a show and my credibility and livelihood depends on it. And a spot opens in, let's say it's a brand new show. I have to fill my writing, uh, you know, my writing room. Who do I want to hire? I want to hire people I've worked with who have a track record, who I know can deliver. 
if I can't find enough of those people, then I want to hire people who maybe I don't know them, but they've worked on other shows and they have a track record and people I respect will vouch for them. Mm -hmm. To hire someone who's new, who no one's vouching for, who doesn't have a track record, I don't care how well-connected in marketing they are. I don't care how amazingly clever their blog is or what contest they want. I've got to look at their work and say, this is unique and amazing, and I want this magic on my show. And then I'm going to meet with them and look them in the eye and make sure that I can trust this person or make the best you know, deliberation that I can. That's the thing people don't realize. Everybody's like, I want to, I want to write a staff job. I'm going to say, how come no one will hire me? Because you're asking someone to put their career on the line for you, and who the heck are you? Where's your credibility? Right. Um, or you know, with a with a feature script, you know, if if uh, you know projects go to a major director or a major star, projects go to Julia Roberts, or projects go to Russell Crowe or Matthew McConaughey, whoever. I mean, if it's Aaron Sorkin as the writer, and they've always wanted to work for Aaron Sorkin. And people who've worked for Aaron Sorkin as actors or, you know, who've done Aaron Sorkin scripts have won Academy Awards. And then your script is there and your script's amazing. It's as, it's, it's as amazing Aaron, as Aaron Sorkin script. Your script is as amazing as Aaron Sorkin script. They're going to go with the Aaron Sorkin script. Your script has to be more amazing. Mm-hmm. That's the key. And, and it's about developing yourself to get there. And I was really lucky because I broke in the business in the late 90s. And so for the first, I'll say this, the script that I broke in the business with is not a good enough script for someone to break in the business today. And I was really fortunate to work with great people like Ridley Scott and Wolfgang Peterson and Working Title who mentored me. I didn't, so I was getting paid as I was learning, I was getting paid as I was being taught because I quickly realized what I learned in film school for the most part was wrong. Uh, Most MFA programs are just factories and they're teaching lots of formula and lots of rules. And most of the successful writers realize that there's some good things to that, but there's a lot of things that are harmful and they break out of that. So I was making hundreds of thousands of dollars, working with people who were helping me become better writers. That's, that's how it used to be. And it's still possible in TV. You know, if you get in, maybe you're a writer's assistant, you show a lot of potential, you're bright, you work really hard, um, a spot opens, you know, they often like from a, a writer's assistant, and then you're the junior person in the room, and you're learning. You're in the TV industry, you're getting paid, you're working your ass off, but you're getting paid to learn and get better. Right. Like that happens in TV. That no longer happens in features. It used to. Mm-hmm. It used to, but it no longer does. So all the more reason why the, it's more valuable today than it's ever been to develop yourself, to find, to, you know, to find mentors, to find teachers, or to do it yourself. Um, never been more important to be able to do that. That said, never been a better time to break in the writing game. The one script can absolutely change your life, and I'm seeing this happen more and more often over the last several years. One script can absolutely change your life, but it has to be the right script. 
Well, that's what I, I was going to interrupt you there, but that's the one thing I wanted to mention that pretty much to the person of the writers, professional writers, working writers, successful writers that we have spoken to and managers will say the same thing. Like if you ask managers, how many, like we've had this question many times, how many scripts should a new, do you like your new clients to have? And most of them say, all that matters is you have one great one. And, but if you ask screenwriters how many scripts they've written before they sold their first script or before they had something that was professional enough to be sent around that got them their first job, it's never one. They've never written right. one script. They worked for years, worked, wrote 5, 10, 20. I think uh, uh, Brandon Braga, who, you know, who wrote Star Trek for a long time, does Salem now, uh, huge writer, uh, showrunner. And I think he said like 40 scripts or something before he had right. written something that sold. So it's, it's a long process. It's, it takes right, a and long those 40, time. And those 40 scripts, it's, it's not a matter of just writing 40 scripts until no. the right ones at the right place. It's learning and improving. Exactly. You, you have to grow right. and get better because your, your, your fourth script will be exponentially better than your first script. Garrett, no matter how good of a writer you are, you're, the more scripts you write, the better you get at the craft, period. And so to continually grow and improve. But yeah, yeah like you said, it's not just writing 40 scripts and you right. know, having but to, 40. To, quick, to, to quick interject, because I have agreed with everything you said. And everything you said has been so smart and dead on. Um, just to have a little bit of conflict, because conflict's good for writing. Sure. I'm going to I'm going to respectfully disagree with just one thing that you said, mm -hmm. which is what I see is for most writers, not all writers, but for most writers, the more they write, they don't necessarily improve. What I see mm. for most writers is the more they write, the larger the pile of similarly flawed <laughs> scripts they have. Now, if, if you're writing scripts and you have the right people reading them and you can sure. learn from your mistakes and get better, that's absolutely what you said is true. But I think that for a lot, I see, I see writers who've written 10 scripts. Right. Their 10th script is better than the first script, but it isn't any better than the third script. Like, Oh, gotcha. After three or four scripts, they they learn what they were able to learn, and they don't right. see their weaknesses or they don't know what to do. But like, there's so many writers out there that go, "I know my characters aren't as good as they need to be. I don't know what to do about it. And I don't care how many scripts they write; it's not going to change." Or people say, "Yeah, I know my storytelling is weak and, and it can't hold people's attention, and my stories they 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 get episodic, they run out of steam in the second act, or whatever." I, I know this. But I don't know. And then they, they just keep thinking the next script's going to solve that problem. And, you know, if, if you're continually dating and there's something that is consistently turning off people that you date, um, dating more people isn't going to solve the problem. And so maybe it's just like my teacher's bias and my teacher's experience. But I'm a big believer that developing skill sets is essential. And a lot of people, the more scripts they write, they just keep, it's like, there's a reason why when you go to Second City, they don't throw you on stage because right. you would start improvising the way your sort of natural instincts and impulses would lead you, which isn't very strong. They, they don't let you get on stage for at least a year, if not longer. Juilliard's the same way with their actors. So sort of my paradigm break as a teacher from most teachers is because a lot of the programs and I've taught in some of them in the past, it's all about come in and write and I'll give you feedback and I'll help you get a better script. My approach is let's make you a better writer and let's focus, let's, let's not think about scripts for a short period of time. Let's just focus on the skill set hmm. and let's get you really strong at the skill set. Then let's focus on scripts. So basically I've taken the approach, you know, that Juilliard and, and Second City and 
the ground means do. And I've seen a huge change, a huge, a huge uptick, uh, surge in the success rate. So you, you just hit a hot button for me, which is uh, definitely for some writers, the more they write, the better they become. Right, right. Because they're able to figure it out and they have people in their lives who can help them figure it out. But that's not true of most writers. Right. No, I, that, that makes sense. And I, I, I guess if I, I read a lot more uh, spec scripts floating around um, and dealt with a lot of newer writers in that level, um, other than getting questions of, I just finished my first script. Where, how can I get my agent? Um, right. So, uh, yeah, right. no, that makes sense. Um, but we could go on and on, but uh, we'll have to pick this up uh, later because, you know, with uh, other topics you had mentioned, how to stay in a career, I think is, would be very interesting as well because um, breaking in is one thing, uh, although that's something that I think a lot of our listeners are still on that position but yeah right. i think maintaining a career because we do have uh, a number of listeners who uh you know have agents and have sold things right. and option thing you know one you know been on the blacklist and that kind of thing so i think that that yeah we can certainly actually come back and we can talk about that but the other thing that i'd really like if i came back one of the things that i talked about is yeah. help to help i just not make the mistakes that i make because the mistake i made was i was just focused on getting an agent and selling something and having a career that's all i was focused on I right. never stopped to ask myself what kind of career I wanted. Yeah. And, and I'm a big believer that it's so hard to break in that you should figure out the kind of career you want and then backtrack to what's the way to break in to that kind of a career right. and go for that. And, and if that ultimately isn't working out for you, then you can think about plan B, but for too many writers, plan B is plan A. So, um, I think the career stuff is important, even for people who don't have agents or managers, because um, a lot of writers just make mistakes in terms of look. Your intent matters, and so if you start walking in a certain direction, um, you're more likely to end up in that direction than if you walk somewhere else. And I I see the fall. Uh, I, I see the results of that. I work with writers who. I've launched careers and they're like, I'm not happy. This isn't the career I wanted. This isn't mm -hmm. the kind of life or stuff I wanted to be doing. Or I work with writers who launched the wrong kind of careers and they couldn't sustain it. And so they worked for a year or two and that was the end of it. Right. And so plenty of stuff. And also I would say for your listeners, and I, I hope this is cool to say it, otherwise feel free to edit it out. But, you know, in listening to this, if you have any uh, specific questions, um, you know, email Kevin or you can email me. I'm at Corey at CoreyMazel.net because, you know, maybe there's a bunch of people who are really interested in something because we covered a pretty wide range of topics. Right. Um, we could dig in, you know, there's lots of stuff that we could dig in and spend half the podcast on. Right. Um, and so if people are really interested um, you know, in certain topics that that could be cool. Yeah, no, absolutely. And definitely be sure to check out Corey's website, CoreyMandel.net. Uh, and his Twitter handle is at CoreyMandel. Uh, we ha we'll have all the links on our site too. So, um, yeah. And if I could just jump in real quick yeah. for a super fast commercial, which is if you're interested in um, a teacher or a class that can help develop you as a writer, I have a very unique program. I'm very proud of it. You can find the information at CoreyMandel.net. I'll say that we do workshops and we do them live in Santa Monica, but we also do them online using real-time video conferencing. So it's 
it's not an online class where everything's text-based. It's like a brick-and-mortar class. We see each other, we hear each other, we talk, we read each other's work. And the online classes, we have people from all over the country, but all over the world. We have people in Europe and Africa. So the, I'm not sure when this will be posted, but the next uh, classes, and these will be the last ones for the year, will be in September. Okay. Um, and again, we have them live in Santa Monica and online. So if you're interested, they, they tend to sell out about two months in advance. So if you're interested, um, you can email my assistant for more information. It's lisa at coreymandel.net or you can go to coreymandel.net and information. We teach creative integration. We teach scene construction, authentic story design, uh, compelling conflict, strategic rewriting. It, it's very much focused on the skill set that professional writers have. And it's also designed to help writers. We coach writers to figure out where their strengths are, where their weaknesses are, where their blind spots are. And most importantly, we'll tailor specific exercises to help writers turn weaknesses into strengths. So it's part teaching, it's part coaching. Um, if you go to the testimonial page, I'm really, uh, I just feel really proud of the people now who are supporting us. There's agents and managers and executives who for years told people not to take the screenwriting classes because they're all the same and they're all teaching formula who are giving, uh, sending people our way. Lots of managers who are signing people who just aren't strong enough at the character dialogue front or the story front, sending people away. Anyway, I'll end the commercial. You can go on the <laughs> website, coreymandel.net, and the information there if you're interested. Great. Um, and for the latest updates on recently released and upcoming interviews and features, you can follow us on Twitter at Scribes, and you can also find us on Facebook and Google+. And we will definitely have to have Corey back on uh, another podcast in the future because we have still many topics to cover but in any case thanks for coming on Corey and thank you all for listening